Welcome. Listen to this next Agile Vocalist podcast. What I did not expect was that they perceived, many of them, not all of them, but many of them perceived music thanatology as medical care and talked to me about the limits of time that they had in patient care and also the limits of um, pharmaceuticals and procedures that in end of life care, they, um, physicians and nurses, you know, wanted to be able to spend more time at the bedside. Jennifer Hollis is a writer, music thanatologist, and project director for Harps of Comfort, an organization that provides virtual harp and vocal music to isolated COVID-19 patients. Jennifer is the author of Music at the End of Life, Easing the Pain and Preparing the Passage. She's also a contributor to Religion and Healing in America. Her essays and articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Harvard Review, and other publications. Jennifer's poems have won the Crossroads International Contest and the Atlantis Award from the Poets Billow. She's been a certified music thanatologist offering harp and vocal music to patients at the end of life in Montana, Oregon, Chicago, and Boston. From 2006 to 2012, she was president of Music Thanatology Association International. Stories about her work have appeared on NPR, in the Boston Globe, and several podcasts. She has a degree in child development and a Master of Divinity from Harvard Divinity School. Once upon a time, she was the assistant director of admissions there. Jennifer lives outside Boston with her family. I'd like to um, have you talk a little bit about music thanatology. Um, What is it and um, where does it take you? What types of of care does it take you um, to journey to, to find people who are suffering and or on their way to death. Sure. Yeah. So um, music thanatology is a clinical musical modality, and we use live harp and vocal music at the bedside of patients who are dying to um, support them, to relieve suffering, to support their family members, uh, and also their caregivers. Um, We use uh, the, the visits that we do, we call music vigils. And uh, the process we use is called a prescriptive process. So we're thinking about the ways that the raw materials of music, like rhythm and melody and tonality and timbre can kind of um, be used in a prescriptive way to help alleviate suffering. Alleviate <laughs> suffering. Um, and so that means that uh, minute by minute in the music vigil, we are uh, attending to the patient and thinking about how the music can um, help, help support them. Um, And that can take a lot of forms. Um, I always like to say that uh, when I say that I play for dying patients, um, I like to be clear that, you know, death and dying is a process and we really never know when it's going to happen. Even experts have a hard time predicting when the actual moment of death will be. So um, I certainly have played for patients who were um, taking their final breath. And I've also played for patients who had a a serious illness that was going to create a decline over many weeks or months or even years. And the music was supporting um, that longer and slower process of end of life care. So 
Music thanatology can be very effective for a number of things. Um, certainly symptom management, things like pain and anxiety and difficult respirations. Um, it can help support, um, you know, a family that's grieving and a patient that's preparing to leave their life. Um, it can um, create an environment where um, people can have a little space to reflect and process on what's happening before them. Um, often we play in really busy medical settings like ICUs where there's a lot of noise and a lot of confusion and it's very hard to sleep or get any rest because you know, the, the medical needs of patients in hospitals are so complex. Um, and a music vigil can be a time um, for um, a different kind of space. So we play uh, wherever patients are. In the before times, <laughs> we played in hospitals and nursing homes and hospice settings. Sometimes a hospice will have an inpatient unit in a hospital. Um, so we just go wherever the patients are. Um, you wrote a book, uh, Music at the End of Life, Easing the Pain and Preparing uh, the Passage, and that was published in 2010. Can you tell us a little bit about your perspective as an author of that book and how um, music is perceived in medicine and what, what you learned. Sure. That'd be yeah. great. Yeah. Um, so this was like a, a really exciting project for me to work on because I had an opportunity to interview my music thanatology colleagues, but also their colleagues in medical settings. So uh, I did somewhere between 50 and 60 interviews of music thanatologists, physicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains, a hospice massage therapist. Um, so people who had not only done the work of music thanatology, but also who worked on teams with music thanatologists. And I got to ask them all the questions that I was curious about <laughs> as a music thanatologist, but never really had the opportunity to ask anyone. And that was, um, you know, things like, uh, when are the moments when you call on music thanatology? What, what do you think the value is of adding someone with a harp who's going to wheel it through your hospital hallways? What is the value of adding that to your team? And how is it benefiting the patients that you care for? What kind of patient care does it provide? And um, I have to admit, when I went into this research project, I expected people to really appreciate the music and really think that it was, um, you know, a, a good use of resources to have music in a medical setting to um, linger and care for patients. But they were incredibly busy. They had so many people to see. There was so much time pressure to move through the day in a certain way that they could refer those patients to the music thanatologist who they knew would spend 45 minutes, an hour, 90, 90 minutes. And then in many cases, chart in the medical chart about what they saw, what their observations were, make referrals to the rest of the team, go to IDT meetings and talk about the plan of care. Um, most of the people I, I talked to in most of these environments, the music thanatologist is really integrated into the medical team. So um, mm. they could offer the kind of care that other staff um, just weren't able to. The other thing that people talked to me about were um, the limits of pharmaceuticals to do the kind of work needed at the end of life, that kind of meaning making and letting go and resolving emotional pain and 
sort of, you know, all these things that we know are necessary at the end of life to say thank you and to ask for forgiveness and, you know, these many things that, um, right. you know, Dr. Ira Bayok is, is famous for writing a book on, on these um, these resolutions that we need at the end of life. And, um, you know, physicians, nurses are trained to give holistic care and a lot, I wouldn't even say a lot, but um, what a lot of, the, uh, of them spoke to me about was um, the limits of what they can offer people. You know, the limits of pharmaceuticals. They've, they've treated the pain. They've, the disease process is taking over. They, right. they, they need something else. And so it was really beautiful to hear reflected in these interviews that um, a lot of these team members, they come to the end of what they can offer when they are in end of life care. Yeah. And it felt so good to them to be able to offer something like music thanatology. Right. Um, so there's, I always like to say, there's plenty of opportunities to say no, thank you if you want to. Right. But um, for people who want it and for people for whom this really resonates, um, it can provide um, just a different kind of care than the everyday life of a medical setting and can provide that little bit of space and quiet um, and can kind of transform that room into a different kind of space to do um, just that, that tough work of letting go that comes at the end of life. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, the size of the music thanatology field and how you know, I'm curious about um, are the more well-funded hospitals more likely to have access? Do you have any hospitals that you work for where there's a budget for this? Kind of talk about the the business of music thanatology. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So there are less than 100 practitioners of music thanatology in the world. Um you know, music thanatology exists within um, a large context of musicians who play in medical settings. So there's an entirely different field uh, with an education process and a licensing process called music therapy. Many people are familiar with it. There are many more music therapists um, and they serve many different populations. There are other kinds of therapeutic musicians, even people who play at the end of life. Um, but music thanatology has, um, has a, a small uh, niche within that where we only use harp and vocal music and we only play for patients at the end of life. Like many fields, music thanatology has unfolded since the 80s when it was, um, when the first training programs were opened and when it sort of launched. Um, and different hospitals and hospices have had a different relationship with it. I would say what I uncovered in my research is that typically music thanatologists will um, begin to introduce music thanatology to the places where they might like to get a job. So offering a presentation at a team meeting for continuing education, um, being available to educate um, team members in hospitals and hospices about what their care can offer. And then um, if that institution becomes very interested in that and begins to kind of see a way in, then of course you have to talk about funding. So how will this get funded? Um, different hospitals have done different things. Sometimes they will hire a music thanatologist that is also another um, professional. So perhaps there's a chaplain that is also a music thanatologist. So they're hired uh, in both capacities. They're a you know, two thirds 
chaplain, one third music thanatologist. And in that way, the institution be can just begin to see, is there a benefit to our patients? Is there something that we see here that we wanna to commit to? Does, this, does music thanatology reflect the values of the institution? Does it reflect the kind of patient care that we wanna offer? What, um, what are, and then also, um, you know, what are we seeing and hearing from patients and families about these music vigils? Are they beneficial? Are right. they transformative? Um, and so in that way, over time, um, an institution can, can just begin to engage with the feel and start to think, okay, what do we want to dedicate some fundraising or some philanthropy money for this? Do we want to apply for grants? Mm -hmm. Do we want to simply dedicate a salary to this position because we value what it offers so much? So different institutions do it in different ways. Different ways. I have both, you know, I have been hired by a hospital that had grant funding for music. Mm -hmm. And I just, it was a lovely synchronicity that I met them right at that time. I've also been hired by a hospice that had a music thanatology job where they posted wow. it to fill it. And I sent my resume and they hired me. So I, you know, I think as it moves into the world, um, depending on kind of where you live and, mm -hmm. and how it is you want to pioneer, um, different people do it different ways. Um, I used to volunteer at our local shelter and sometimes work with quote unquote, the cats in the back who were mm. not up for adoption, who were yeah. ill or were deemed not adoptable. And, um, that institution was, you know, the kill rate was very low and still very low for cats. But th there were some that I worked with at the end of life. And I noticed that in a moment or two of just interacting with them through their cage, they would come alive, they would blossom. Um, I would love to use that as a lead in, you know, what calls you back to this work? Um, how responsive or not are the people that you play for? And how do you know you're making an impact? Oh, it's such, that, that's such a good question because um, there's a wide range of things that I see in front of me. I think I would say over the time I've been doing this, what happens probably the most commonly is everybody falls asleep. It's um, just so exhausting to be in these settings. And um, I think it takes a little bit of the pressure off to have someone show up with an instrument and kind of not exactly make themselves the center of attention, but there's a little something else going on than the conversation or the attending to the patient. And a very typical music vigil for me is coming into the room, um, speaking with everyone, tuning the harp in the hall, beginning to play and then watching as, you know, the patient just begins to relax and soften, yep. their face relaxes, if yep. their hands are a little clenched, they unclench a little bit. And um, loved ones who, you know, are sitting on the edge of their chair in that hospital room sort of watching everything all the time, right. just to lean back and sort of lean back and hopefully kind of calm and rest. And I tend to tell people, because, you know, in everyday life, we do not have a lot of experiences of someone coming into our personal space with an right. instrument, right. gazing at us and playing music <laughs> along right. with our breaths, right? right? Unless we 
happen to have a loved one or a parent or a sweetheart with who plays an instrument. Most right. of us have never seen or heard this. So I, I do tell people, this is not a concert. You do not have to behave yourself. Like it is okay mm -hmm. if you fall asleep. It's yeah. okay if you need to get up and leave. Like we're just going to be in this together for a little while. And I am going to check in in case you need something. And we're going to try it out and see how it goes. So hopefully that gives people a sense that they're, you know, they're not going to be stuck with an hour of hard music. You know, they can just relax a little bit and see, right. and then I'm going to check in. What calls you personally back? Yeah. So you talked about how the difference that you're making, but how do you, why do you keep doing this work? Yeah. 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 It is hard. You know, I do see people who are really suffering and I see, you know, sometimes I can just tap into the humanity of, um, you know, my own mortality and the mortality of the people I love. Right. Um, but music can really help. I mean, I think some of the suffering that comes of those moments is that we feel so helpless. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. Right. We don't know how to say goodbye in a good way. You know, a lot of us don't have a lot of experience with that. We might not have you know, ritual or culture or practices to call on. We don't know what to do. Um, and in some ways, you know, music can really mediate that, can really hold and cradle people while they are trying to be together in a good way. And I feel very, very grateful to have something useful to do. I feel very grateful that most of the time, if someone has had music thanatology explained to them and said yes, I can be confident that it will be effective. I keep coming back to it um, because I keep observing its efficacy yeah. um, and just the beauty of sharing music with people. I'll also say the other thing I come back for is how exquisite and tender the people that I witness are with each other. I feel like, you know, I started this as a very young adult. I was 22 when I started my training and I'm 48 now. So all the way through my, you know, early adulthood into middle-aged, I have had just the opportunity to witness strangers tending to each other in this beautiful way where you know they're holding hands or they're trying to say the right thing or they're moving close to the bed or they're sort of laying their cheek on the blanket to be close to their loved one or they're mm -hmm. telling stories you know <laughs> i've had all this training you know i've had music thanatology training i went to divinity school right I've been thinking with, and talking with my colleagues for years and years and years. Uh -huh. And I assume that most of the families I visit with are just improvising. You know, they're improvising these moments together, uh -huh. trying to um, say goodbye in the right way, trying to end on the right note. And um, that's a gift to me to just watch just how much people love each other and how vulnerable they're willing to be and how hard they're working, even though they're frightened, and even though they're grieving, how hard they're working right. to, to be there, you know, to be there and, be right. and weep in front of each other and say the right word. Anyway. Yeah, no, it's that, 
also is just such a, um, it's just a personal, deep education for me about what does it mean to be a living creature. That was inspiring. Be sure to listen again soon. Agile Vocalist is created and produced by Rachel Medanik. Contributing editor and design artists include Amanda Whitesell, Daisy Owen, Sasha Brandt, Chloe Medanik-Watt. Podcast music theme by Looperman. With special thanks to my husband, Dave. <laughs>